Buddha's prescription for relief from suffering is called the Eightfold Noble Path. And it is sometimes characterized as the middle path because it is the path in the middle between the extremes of asceticism, which was the common uh, practice uh, for spiritual attainments in his day, and indulgence or uh, just indulgence in sensual pleasure or just living the good life as we would know it. And this path, this middle path is, it's really about establishing balance in your life. Balance in the body, in the mind, in relation to everything. Much of our practice is learning how to uh, recognize balanced state of mind and how to uh, arouse the qualities to bring a mind into balance if it's out of balance or how to suppress qualities that are in excess in order to bring the mind into balance. Awareness, as you know, is a balance between being tranquil and alert. And sometimes we can feel that these two energies of tranquility and alertness are kind of pulling in opposite directions, but it's just that very refined, steady tension between the two that strikes a balance that allows us to be aware. Equanimity is the place in the middle between reactivity and passivity. And we're faced with this uh, option uh, many times a day, whether to react, how to react, or whether just let it go and be passive and just, <laughs> and how to find a right relationship to the events of our life is finding the middle path, finding a place of balance. When we apply effort in practice, we know if we try too hard, if we make too much effort, we get caught in striving, we get tight, we get tense, we get goal-oriented, not so effective. On the other hand, if we don't make enough effort, we languish and we dawdle and we get sleepy and we take too many naps and we don't get very far either. So it's finding the place again in the middle between excessive striving and not making right effort. So right effort is the place in the middle. It's, it's the place of balance. The other night I spoke about faith as the first of the five controlling faculties. Faith, while it is essential and it is uh, important support in practice, can be in excess or can be deficient 
in relationship to wisdom. Faith must be kept in balance with wisdom or knowledge, really. Excessive faith, and you're just kind of like a, you know, kind of a undiscerning devotee and doing anything. It's just got a lot of faith and not much wisdom. On the other hand, if you're so full of book knowledge and you've got so much of that kind of knowledge wisdom, you may not have the faith to actually undertake the practice. And so the path proceeds through finding the balance between faith and wisdom. The other two other uh, factors in those five controlling factors faculties are uh, concentration and energy. Concentration being the collectedness of the mind usually experienced, subjectively experienced as tranquility, and which is a great benefit in practice. Often uh, it's the most enjoyed uh, experience uh, of meditators is just oh, finally calming down. And yet, on the other hand, you know, if you get too calm, fall asleep, and so you need to have some energy. But if you have too much energy, you get too restless and wound up, and right practice or the right balance between tranquility and energy, or concentration and energy, is also required. So you can see there's just many ways of um, looking at effective practice or right relationship to life as finding the balance. Learning how to monitor ourselves and noticing when we have an imbalance where something is in excess or it's, in, it's deficient. Recognizing that and making an adjustment to bring ourselves back into balance. Now. You know, a tightrope walker walks on this very thin wire. I mean, it's actually quite big, actually, some of them. Wire up in the air. And as if that wasn't challenging enough, they carry this huge and heavy pole, which is just extremely long. And it's really quite heavy. Why? Right. Wow, there, okay. Next page. Sorry. Cool. <laughs> but how? How does that work? Well, when walking a tightrope, you know, the trick is to not fall left or not fall right. And if there's a tilt one direction or the other, all it takes is a slight movement of your hands on that pole to shift the whole center of gravity back into balance. And if you start to tip the other way, you don't have to react strongly and radically to, to catch your balance. You just have to make a very little adjustment with your fingers and move that pole a little bit in the other direction, and it brings the center of gravity back into balance. Well, as you can imagine, Learning to walk a tightrope is not easy, and we overreact, and we make radical adjustments and fall off frequently. 
And it's only the really proficient and skilled person who's practiced a lot, who knows just how little it takes to bring ourselves back into balance. Same with practice. When we start out in practice, well, we don't have any sense of what balance is anyway, and we try too hard for a while, you know, a decade or two, and then, <laughs> speaking for myself, and then, <laughs> and then we try, you know, the relaxed approach until we realize we're not getting anywhere with that, and we make just radical, uh, often we make radical adjustments which are overshooting the mark regularly. And it's only through learning that we've fallen off of, fallen out of balance, that we start again and, and make some other kinds of adjustments. And in time we, we realize it's just a really subtle adjustment, but it's an adjustment or it's a balance to be monitored in every moment. You can't say, this retreat, I'm going to do that, and next retreat, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to be in balance. It's, I mean, we try that, but it's really moment to moment just seeing where the balance is, or if there is a balance or an, or an imbalance. The balance I want to speak about tonight is the balance, the balancing of the seven factors of awakening or the seven factors of enlightenment. And we talk about the seven factors of enlightenment because these are the factors that are most uh, most required and are the cause for bodhi or wisdom. They're called the bojangas. So they are the factors of awakening, factors of awakening wisdom. Sometimes when we, sometimes when I think of factors of mind, it feels like they're a noun, that there is this thing in the mind that you got to get to, to have this factor of mind. But lately I've come to see and understand that really they are verbs. Investigation of mind or investigating the Dharma is a verb. It's a capacity of the mind or joy. Joy, it's either there or not as a noun or it is a capacity of the mind to be joyful, to be delighted, or tranquility. It can be there or not as a noun, or it is a capacity of the mind to be tranquil. It is more of a verb. It's a tranquilizing capacity. So as I speak about these factors of mind tonight, or the factors of awakening, I want you to try to keep in mind that these are verbs, some of which we can activate, some of which occur as a result of our practice. Now the, the factors of Awakening 7 include three factors which are called the energizing factors, and three factors which are called the tranquilizing factors, 
and the one in the middle that keeps them in balance, which is mindfulness. So mindfulness is the, one of the factors that keeps the three tranquilizing and the three energizing in balance. The three energizing factors are the investigation of the Dharma, which is, a, um, which is the wisdom factor. It's, it's knowledge that is gained from investigating the Dharma. The Dharma being not what you read in the books, but what you experience in each moment. I'll speak more about each one of these. And investigation of the Dharma, uh, energy, obviously, an energizing factor of mind. And the third is joy, or delight, or rapture. And this is also a quality or capacity of the mind to take delight in experience. Now these three factors can, if they're what are highly developed, can be pretty intense and need to be brought into balance with the three tranquilizing factors, which are calm or tranquility, the tranquilizing verb of the mind, uh, samadhi, which is the collectedness or concentration of the mind, which is also a calming, uh, collecting, stabilizing effect on the mind. And the third tranquilizing factor is equanimity or balance of mind. If these are disproportionately aroused and developed, we'll be bottom trolling and cruising without much awareness or energy. We'll just be kind of, you know, it's like taking downers or something. It's like mm, cruising on the bottom. So these two need to be uh, developed and brought into balance with the energizing factors. An interesting thing that Upandita used to say is, all of these factors, the energizing and tranquilizing, can either be deficient or excessive, except mindfulness, which is never in excess. You can't have too much awareness. I know sometimes we think, oh, I am too aware. <laughs> Maybe that's a reaction to what you're aware of, but you can't have too much awareness. So we'll start there. And how many talks have you heard on mindfulness? <laughs> I mean, why don't you tell me about mindfulness? I mean, and yet, awareness, mindfulness is knowing the present moment when it arises. I used to call it participatory awareness or participatory observation because you got to be there. You can't just observe kind of like over there somewhere. You got to be there feeling it. It's more feeling feeling something and knowing it through that. We say seeing or observing, but it's knowing with the mind. It's not using your eyes. <clears throat> it's really knowing it with the mind. When an object arises, and what I mean by an object arises, I mean 
what is occurring in this present moment that has called your attention? It can be a sight, a sound, a breath, a thought, a sensation in the body. That is an object arising. That object arises and awareness, if it's there, knows it. When it knows it, two things happen. There is the tasting of the unique flavor of this object. And there is the knowing of it. Now, I hate to press a point, but we experience a lot of life without knowing what we're experiencing. Do you have a wandering mind today? <laughs> of course. The mind wanders off. When the mind's wandering, you don't have any idea. what You don't know where you are. You don't know you're sitting. You don't know, you don't know where you're thinking. You don't know what you're thinking about. You don't know anything. You don't even know you're alive. You're just absent. But, you know, it comes to an end, thankfully. Somewhere today came to an end. <laughs> and immediately upon ending, you can often take a look back and recognize, see, everything that you'd been thinking. The mind was knowing it, but there was no awareness of it. Okay, what we're trying to do in this practice is develop that awareness. We're not trying to develop the knowing, and what we're knowing doesn't really matter. That's why you can choose the breath, you can choose the posture, you can choose sensations in the body, you can choose the, the qualities and activities of mind. It doesn't matter what you're knowing, it's is there an awareness of it as it arises? As your attention is called to this thing, this one momentary thing in each moment, is there an awareness of knowing that? <clears throat> we, we say that the, the characteristic, as Kamala mentioned this morning, the characteristic of mindfulness is not floating away. It's plunging into. It's, it's going into something. It means we... It's like this. You want to you wanna get a taste of an apple. You know, you can look at that apple all you want. You'll never know the taste. You can touch it with your finger all you want. You'll never know the taste. You can peel it. You can cut it open. You can smell it. You'll never know the taste until you put it on your tongue. But if you just take a piece and set it on your tongue, you don't chew and you don't move it around, you're still not going to know what the taste of that apple is. You have to contact, you have to touch it, and you have to rub your mind in it, and you've got to get it kind of really in touch with. You've got to get intimate with that piece of apple before you know the taste of it. The same is true with every experience that arises and calls your attention. If you're just skimming over it, you don't taste it. You really have to kind of get intimate <laughs> with, with this object that has arisen. And it is awareness, mindfulness, that gets intimate, that touches and connects with, and, and we say sometimes rubbing the mind on the object in order to know it. What does it mean to know something? To know something means to, well, I'm going to use the word observe again. I don't mean observe with the eyes. I mean to, to be present with something and to, to, to recognize it, to recognize th this, the uniqueness of this thing that you're, that you're experiencing. 
that, that has arisen. The uniqueness of it is its sabhava, its unique flavor. That's what mindfulness in, in Vipassana practice is attempting to do, is to taste the unique flavor of this moment. The in-breath is different than the out-breath. You know, um, heat is different than coolness. Enjoying is different than disliking. Pleasant is different than unpleasant. Fear is different than desire. Desire is different than depression. Depression is different than despair. How do we know that? Well, we know because we've tasted it mindfully. We've been fully aware of the arising of that state of mind or the arising of that physical experience, and we have observed it with the mind. The awareness has tasted it. So we say that the characteristic of, of mindfulness is plunging into, not floating away, not being superficial, but be getting, getting intimate with um, what has arisen. Now, if there was a little, little birdie <laughs> sitting on your shoulder saying, be mindful, be mindful of that in-breath, be mindful of that out-breath, take notice of that. Did you just hear that sound? You'd probably get driven to distraction, but, <laughs> but you'd, you'd be more continuous in your noticing. When someone says, oh, feel, feel the sensations in your right hand right now, you can do that. It's not hard to be aware. It's not, it's not kind of conceptually difficult to get your mind around, and it's not really hard to do if you follow the instructions. What's hard is to remember to do it, especially when you're on your own. You know, you're, you know, we talk for five minutes, give the instruction, and the next 35 minutes, you're on your own, trying to remember. Now, what is it I'm doing here? It is mind-boggling difficult to remember to be mindful, to be aware. So somehow we have to internalize the instructions and remind ourselves over and over and over again to, to do that. This is, you know, we're getting close to right effort when we talk about how persistent you have to be. It's just being persistent. It's not, you don't have to grit your teeth and hunch your shoulders and clench your fists in order to be mindful. You just have to be aware moment after moment. It's remembering, really. Why do we pay attention to the present moment? Why, why be mindful? Well, we're mindful in order to learn about what has arisen because so much of what has arisen either is suffering or is the cause of suffering. If we're not careful, we don't pay attention, we will be caught in it. We'll get identified with it, we'll claim ownership of it, we'll you know, enmesh ourselves in it, and we'll suffer. Now how do you learn the nature of something? Well, in the old days, you used to just sit down, read every book that had been written on it, and then think about that. And those old days are still with us, as you know. But just the other day, I was sitting at my desk in the cottage, and there's a little hillside outside, and something caught my attention. And it was the mama deer and these two little fawns that are around here. 
and one of them is about, you know, 15 inches tall. I mean, it is a little thing. And I was kind of captivated by it and just watched it for, you know, five minutes or so. If you want to know the nature of deer, you just observe it. You don't have to think about the deer. You don't have to think about what they're doing. You don't have to think about whether they're going to or not or how long they're going to. You just watch it. Just watch. And then you'll notice how many bites they take before they look up, what, they, what happens when they flick their ear, when they hear a sound, what, what happens to their ears, how often does the mom check in with the baby, what does the baby need from the mom. It's just, you just watch. You don't have to think about it. You don't, you don't have to put it to words. You don't have to name it. You don't have to do anything except just pay attention. But know that you're paying attention. And then you can write your essay about the nature of deer. Well, in this process, we're paying attention to the mind and body. You know, what is the nature of the in-breath? What's the nature of the out-breath? What's the nature of boredom? What's the nature of, you know, fear? What's the nature of pain? What's the nature of sleepiness? What's the nature of hunger? You don't have to think about it. You don't have to judge yourself for it. You don't judge that mother deer. Is she attending to that baby enough? You know, are they eating the right thing? You know, I mean, it's like, you just watch. You just watch, you'll know. Well, same with us. We don't need to judge and evaluate. Am, am I doing the right thing? You just watch. You just observe. In time, you'll have enough knowledge, you'll have gathered enough data, so to speak, to know the nature of everything that's being observed. Now, we get, we want to be mindful, but these agendas sneak into our mind and attach themselves to our mindfulness. And we have these agendas to, to fix it, to explain it, to justify it, to get rid of it, to plan for it to be there next time. We, they just sneak in, just so quickly. All of those agendas are defilement. All of them. There's some sort of hindrance, some sort of obstruction, some sort of contaminant to the awareness. And when they're present, if they're not seen, our mindfulness or awareness is not on task. It's not just observing. It's recreating, it's justifying, it's doing something. And while we're still seeing what's going on, we're not understanding it correctly. So this is mindfulness, which we're all very familiar with, kind of. So the energizing uh, qualities of mind, as I mentioned, are the investigation of the Dharma, energy, and joy. When I say investigation of the Dharma, we can't help but think, think. <laughs> That's it. We can't help but think that the way to investigate the Dharma is to think about it or think about our experience, breathing in, breathing out. Am I breathing right? Or paying attention to sensations in the body. Well, what, what's this about? Where's this coming from? And we start to think about our experience, but that's not what investigation of the Dharma is. Investigation of the Dharma really means investigation through awareness. It's just being with. It's just being present with 
The Dharma is the way things are. So being present with this moment, whatever has called your attention, whatever has arisen, being present with that. Now, sometimes we don't like what has arisen. You know, there's some pain in the body or there's some unpleasant memory has, has appeared in the mind. And we know we don't like it. It's unpleasant. The body, you know, the mind goes, mm, red alert. And we don't want to investigate. We don't want to be present with it, let alone investigate it. And so we, we turn away. We go off in some distracted thought. We go off into an explanation. We judge it and say, well, this isn't right, right practice. I'm not supposed to be paying attention to this. Or, you know, some anger arises in some old memory, and we say, oh, i got to do some metta. Which is okay. Metta is a good thing to do. But in the investigation of the Dharma, if we want to investigate the Dharma, then we have to encourage ourselves to stay present with both the pleasant, the unpleasant, and the things that are unfamiliar, the things that are, you know, sometimes a little... We'd rather be doing something else. You know, we've lived our life like that. We've lived our life trying to avoid the unpleasantness, doing as best we can, but not succeeding very well. And insight or the path of awakening, liberation, is finally deciding not to avoid anymore. You say, well, if this is what comes up, this is what I'm going to look at. Now, we've all got skeletons in the closet. We've all got unpleasant things that we've done and that have been done to us. Okay, we don't have to just kind of rip it open, take a look, get overwhelmed, and give up practice. That's not very skillful. But to the extent that we can arouse the investigation mind and the courage and the energy, take a look, we can, as we observe and continue to observe, without judgment, we will eventually understand this experience correctly. And when we do that, we'll stop suffering. It's because we don't understand things correctly. We have a wrong understanding. We have a wrong view of ourselves. We have a wrong understanding of experience. And so we suffer. We take things on as me and mine when they're really not. We think they're you know, we get identified with things that are not really who I am. And we suffer with them. But if we learn to observe, and we observe steadily, continuously, carefully, we will eventually come to understand correctly, just like the deer. You know, if you watch the deer for five minutes, you're not going to understand. You're going to know everything about those deer. But if you watched them long enough and carefully enough, you would eventually know more have a more uh, comprehensive understanding. Same with our own mind and body. As we just observe, we'll come to greater knowledge, greater understanding. And from that, we can have a right relationship that, has, that involves less suffering. And that's the goal. That's the purpose of practice. As I said, investigation of the Dharma is the wisdom factor. Sometimes it can be deficient, and we're not really interested in looking. You know, things come up, but we just skim over them or turn away and go back to something familiar like the breath. When 
there's a more obvious mental state or sensations in the body. And if there is a more distinct and obvious experience arising, but you're holding on to or insisting on observing a chosen object, you create tension in the mind because you're trying to avoid this bull in the china shop while you pay attention to this flea. <laughs> and it's not easy to do. You just kind of like pay attention to this while there's this rampant thing going on over here. And we do that though. And so it creates this tension in the mind, tension in the body. So while we do encourage you to choose a primary object to begin to, to initiate your mindfulness and the continuity of awareness on. We quickly say, use the primary object, but when your attention is called to something else, which is very soon <laughs> for most of us, notice it. Take note of that. In the beginning, it takes some, you know, really diligent <laughs> hold your mind to the object in order to know it. So I don't want to be too dismissive of all of our practice of really struggling to stay with the breath or to stay with whatever you've chosen as a primary object. The, our conditioning, our restlessness, our conditioning is extraordinary. And, and in the beginning, it does take some extraordinary steadiness of mind, just holding your mind on the object in order to know it clearly. But once there is some momentum and some clarity, then we really need to open up to see what is calling our attention. What is the predominant experience arising in this moment? Because your mind will be called, to, your attention will be called to it quite naturally. So we just want to recognize that. This is investigation of the Dharma when it is excessive, it leads to a lot of thinking. We think about what we're observing or what has called our attention. And sometimes we just get, just kind of, well, you all know, you get really caught up in thinking about, explaining, figuring it out, justifying whatever has arisen, rather than just being with it. For many years, uh, I have had in the past a uh, intestinal distress, you know, acid indigestion and just, just stuff like that. So I was in Burma and after 15 years of being a vegetarian, I went to Burma and on the table is five oily meat dishes, one oily soggy vegetable dish and a lot of white rice. So I, I stopped being a vegetarian, started eating the food there. Did I have problems? Right. Well. After an adjustment, I was eating this food, and I still had all this discomfort. And so I tried to figure it out. I kept track of everything I ate, how much I ate, when I went to the bathroom, how much I went to the bathroom, trying to figure out so that I could make an adjustment and not have to suffer with this indigestion. And, this, uh, and I tried everything except just pay attention to the symptoms. But when I could finally just say, you know what, I can't figure this out. 
I just have to pay attention. If it's unpleasant, it's unpleasant. If it's, if it's bloated, it's bloated. If it's this, it's that. If it's hot, it's hot. If it's burning, it's burning. If it's Whatever it is, it's just that. Once I stop trying to figure it out, trying to explain it, trying to get rid of it, and just was with the discomfort, the symptoms, I wasn't so distressed. Yeah, sometimes it would still be there. Sometimes it would still arise. But I wasn't so, I wasn't suffering so much with it. So look and see, really, in your investigation of the unpleasantness that arises in your mind and body. Are you really just trying to figure it out, get rid of it, explain it? Or is there really some uh, direct contact and observation of it? There's a there's a story about Louis Agassiz. That really um, points to the kind of energy and effort and interest we need when facing difficult things within ourselves. Now, Louis Agassiz was a fellow during the 18th century, 17th, uh, 19th century, back in the 1800s, who in Switzerland studied glaciers. Now, you know, glaciers are not the most active and dynamic thing. Nevertheless, he went to the glaciers and observed them and, and learned about the nature of glaciers. Came on a speaking tour to America, wildly, fantastically popular. Agassiz Club spread up all, sprung up all over the country. Eventually, he was invited to Harvard to teach. And because of his renown, uh, graduate students wanted him as their advisor. And so there was this scramble of applicants to ha get him as an advisor. And he would always interview them. One went like this. When the initial interview was at an end, Agassiz asked the student when he or she would like to begin. And the answer had to be now. <laughs> the student, whereupon the student was immediately presented with a dead fish, usually a very long dead, pickled, evil-smelling specimen personally selected by the master from one of his wide mouth jars that lined his shelves. The fish was placed before the student in a tin pan, and he or she was told to look at the fish. Whereupon, Agassiz would leave and would not return until later in the day, if at all. <laughs> Samuel Scudder, one of those students, described the experience as one of his life's memorable turning points, and he writes, in 10 minutes, I had seen all that could be seen in that fish. Half an hour passed, an hour, another hour. The fish began to look loathsome. <laughs> I turned it over and around. I looked it in the face, ghastly. And from behind, beneath, above, sideways, at three-quarters view, just as ghastly, I was in despair. I wasn't able to use a magnifying glass. Instruments of all kinds were prohibited. My two hands, my two eyes, and the fish. It seemed a most limited field of study. I pushed my finger down his throat to feel how sharp the teeth were. I began to count the scales on the different rows until I was convinced that that was nonsense. At last, a happy thought struck me. I would draw the fish. And now, with surprise, I began to discover new features in the creature. When Agassiz returned later and listened to Scudder recount what he had observed, his only comment was that the young man must look again. S Scudder continues, I was piqued. I was mortified. 
still more of that wretched fish. But, n but now I set myself to my task with a will, and I discovered one new thing after another. The afternoon passed quickly, and when towards its close, the professor inquired, Do you see it yet? I replied, No. I'm certain I do not, but I see how little I saw before. The following day, having thought of the fish through most of the night, Scotter had a brainstorm. The fish, he announced to Agassiz, had symmetrical sides with paired organs. Of course, Agassiz said, obviously pleased. Look, 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 was the repeated injunction and the best lesson he ever had. A legacy of inestimable value, which he could not buy and with which he could not part. Now, there's about 45 pickled fish here. <laughs> All we got to do is look, 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 and uh, we'll soon learn something we didn't, we didn't know before. But that's going to take effort, and that is the second of the arousing, uh, energizing factors. This is maybe, well, some say that the Buddha spoke more about right effort than any other topic in his 45 years of teaching. And you can understand why. There are so many places and so many ways that we can get hung up, off track, misguided, with wrong energy, wrong effort. And it's really hard, it's really difficult to, to find the balance and sustain and maintain right effort. All of the different teachings, techniques, traditions, teachers, formats for practice are all addressing some form of, usually, wrong effort. It's because there's so many of us interested and so many ways we go wrong, we need a wide range of teachings. But they all boil down to four right efforts. The first is to avoid unwholesome states of mind that haven't arisen. You know, just don't go there. Just say no. You know, as they, as they, they say in the poem, uh, I can't remember who it is, you know, your mind is a dangerous neighborhood. Don't go there alone. You know, if you know there is, you know, dangerous, unwholesome places in your mind, don't go there without your mindfulness. You know, you've got some old memories that are pretty mm -mm -mm, not wholesome. Don't go there without your awareness. Avoid it. Just being here on retreat, no news, no CDs, no cell phone, no computer, right? <laughs> You're avoiding a lot. That's a wholesome energy. It's right energy right effort is not always active. Sometimes it's passive. It's like, avoid. Don't go. Don't do. Takes effort to avoid right effort. But sometimes, as we know, you're here, you're doing the best you can, and unwholesome states of mind arise. The hindrances get a grip on you. You know, you get despairing over the first few days of retreat, or some old memories come up, and you're, you're kind of wound up in that again. And it rises, it, it, it comes, you know. That's not bad practice. Let me just say, when we're opening the mind to learn all there is to know, we're going to come across some really unpleasant, some difficult, and sometimes some very unwholesome stuff. 
But once it has arisen, then we have a, to apply or to arouse a different energy to deal with it. Usually, we say, overcome, get rid of unwholesome states of mind. That's a little too aggressive, frankly. Because we have deeply conditioned habits of reactivity. And to just nuke them, you know, uh, you may get rid of it, you may obscure it, you may drive it out of your mind, but with what energy? Aversion. Get rid of it. That's aversion. There's another whole unwholesome state of mind. Really, we can pay attention to unwholesome states of mind and not have an unwholesome state of mind. They arise, and if you can be mindful of it, if you can be aware of it, you're not overwhelmed by it. You're not taken over by it. It may be there, but there are, it's punctuated by moments of awareness of it. Something arises, you're aware of it. Something arises, you're aware of it. Every moment of awareness is a wholesome moment, even if what you're aware of is unwholesome. So just keep noticing, even if it's an unwholesome. Because in that observing and coming to know this unwholesome state of mind, it is the knowledge and understanding of the defilements that uproots them from your mind. We don't want to just get rid of them. You know what? We can, we can get rid of our anger by practicing metta. And that's good. It's good to know how to do that. So when we're overwhelmed by anger, irritation, impatience, practice metta, not overwhelmed. But ultimately, to free our minds from the tendency towards these unwholesome states of mind, we need to understand how they arise in the mind. Why do we get caught? How do we get caught in impatience? How do we get caught in desire over and over and over again? Why? Well, because we don't understand how it works in our mind. We get fooled every time. Something pleasant arises, I want it. We haven't seen enough of that yet. Well, we haven't understood enough of that yet. And so it's, it's through the observation of these unwholesome states of mind that we're going to come to understand them. And it's the understanding that frees you from them, that uproots them from the mind. Temporary relief, great. No problem. Get, get, get some relief from being overwhelmed. But ultimately, insight practice is to understand them and uproot them from the mind. Being here on retreat, deciding to come on retreat, is an expression of your faith, your confidence, your interest, at least, in the Dharma. And this is a wholesome state of mind. So we're arousing, just being here and making the effort is arousing wholesome energy. This is the right energy. And furthermore, when there is a momentum, or when there is some wholesomeness in the mind, it's just to build on it, to just take note of it. You know, we're so good at notice. well, I should say, we get a lot of instruction, a lot of encouragement to notice and note unwholesome states of mind. We also want to give you as much encouragement and instruction to notice and take note of wholesome states of mind. Because it's, they arise. There are times when you're at ease with your, with your 
with your practice, and when there's an easeful awareness and when there's good loving kindness when you're practicing, take note of that because it, in the noticing of it, you strengthen it. In the noticing of unwholesomeness, you weaken it. So we want to arouse and develop the energy that takes note of wholesome states of mind. It's not difficult to be aware or mindful. It's difficult to maintain it continuously. And for this you need right effort, which is simply perseverance. Perseverance is right effort. It's just being willing to again and again and again. Whenever you find yourself off, just start again. Whenever you find yourself caught in a, a defilement, just note that. No matter how long it lasts, just persevere. Being patient with the mind that wanders, with the habits of mind, but being persistent in noting them. You may have heard this. Don Juan, great spiritual teacher of the last century, teaching Carlos Castaneda says, and Carlos writes, Don Juan assured me that in order to accomplish the feat of making myself miserable, I had to work in a most intense fashion and that it was absurd. I had now realized I could work just the same in making myself complete and strong. The truth is in what we emphasize, he said. We either make ourselves miserable or we make ourselves strong. The amount of work is the same. Hmm. Okay, so we have this investigation of the Dharma, arousing this kind of interest and energy. We have the four right efforts. It's all about arousing energy, some of which is, don't go there, joy. We can approach practice with a joyful interest, but it's really hard to maintain it or sustain it out of desire or out of your intention, because it, it's hard work. It's a challenge. So when we talk about piti or joy, we're talking about, yes, you know, trying to bring a fresh, interested uh, mind to practice. But it's also really referring to something that occurs when mindfulness gains momentum. We can intentionally arouse investigation. We can intentionally arouse mindfulness. We can intentionally arouse energy. But the joy that is a seventh is one of the seven factors of awakening is a result of right mindfulness. It can't be aroused through intention. We can, we can approach with a joyful mind, but it, the joy that comes as a seventh factor of awakening is when the mind can do its work unhindered. It takes great delight. What is the work of the mind? Well, the work of the mind is to know. That's what the mind does. The mind knows. It knows sights, it knows sounds, it knows thoughts, it knows emotions, it knows... Without the mind, don't know anything. The work of the mind is to know. When that capacity of mind is hindered, defiled, the mind is struggling under a tremendous amount of baggage. It's just not happy. But when the defilements are put aside temporarily, but for a sustained period of time. And the mind can do its work of knowing. 
the mind gets, well, just tremendously energized, really joyful. And the kind of hmm, experiences that this joy or this interest, this delight that the mind takes in knowing is just extraordinary. The mind just gets so light and so bright, it doesn't matter what it is you're observing. It can be pleasant, it can be unpleasant, it can be familiar, it can be uh, or novel, it can be gross, it can be subtle. It doesn't matter. The mind is just, well, it's kind of like in love with it. Just in love with just knowing anything. <clears throat> when this kind of delight, this kind of, it, it can, it borders on, it can eventually mature into rapture and ecstasy. It can be uh, really just extraordinary. But when it arises in the mind, it's like the mind lights up. Like your eyes are closed and it's like the mind, something inside your head, inside your body, just becomes very light, visually light. And the body becomes very light physically. And the mind becomes very light and agile. And it can just, well, it can know anything instantly. It is terrifically enjoyable, let me say. And uh, it's a result of practice. You can't make it happen. I mean, we'd be, we'd be making it happen all the time if we could. But it's not, it doesn't arise because of our intention or our effort. It arises because of the continuity of awareness. And so that's really what we're working on in order to, or and as a result of that, then joy arises. So these are the three energizing uh, factors of mind. If they were all developed and not in balance, We'd be manic. <laughs> we, we would just be out of control with endless energy and burning ourselves out and, and annoying everybody <laughs> in the process. So lucky for us, we can't do that very well. And at our age, we can't hardly do it at all. But <laughs> nevertheless, we still need the, uh, we need the antidote. So we need the other, the other side of the coin. And these are the tranquilizing factors, which I mentioned are calm, tranquility, uh, collectedness or samadhi, concentration of mind, and equanimity. Calm is pretty obvious. The body just goes clunk, stillness. The mind goes clunk, one thing at a time. It's like things slow down. And the mind is not restless, the mind's not agitated, the mind's not uh, uh, scattered, looking for, looking for something. It's just like things come to you. Things to be known just come in a very steady, calm way. It is the most enjoyable, well, next to bliss and ecstasy. <laughs> it is one of the most enjoyable. And it's often what we, we think is the goal or is a sign of good practice. Of course it is. It's a sign of good practice. It comes with good practice, but it's not the goal of practice. It's easy to mistake, though. And for, for 
many religions, for many people, and before the time of the Buddha, it was the goal of many spiritual practices is to develop extraordinary calmness of mind. And it can be, it can be very powerful. I undertook, I, mean, I did the concentration practice, which is a calming or tranquilizing practice for many months in, uh, when I was in Asia. Uh, for one period of time, about 18 months, just doing tranquility practice. You do tranquility practice for 18 months, and you can walk around for a year and not get excited about much. Even if you stop practice, it takes a long time to wear off, you know, because the mind is so tranquil. It's alert, alert and aware and present, but it's not going to get excited about anything. When there's not the tranquility, of course, we've, we've, we experience agitated, we're over-energized, we feel restless. If we get over-tranquilized, you know, Kamala mentioned this morning, you know, the stunned mullet. You know, just kind of like, uh, can't get out of our own way. <laughs> Tranquility. The second tranquilizing factor is samadhi or collectedness of mind. This is a quality of mind or capacity of mind that occurs in every moment, more or less. If we aim to collect the mind, we can do tranquility practices or concentration practices that just collect the mind more and more. Now the Buddha said there is no end to collecting the mind. There's no limit to how collected the mind can become. Now many of you have been on nine-day retreats, have gotten some concentration together, and you know, I mean, a concentrated mind is really powerful. That's after nine days. There's no end to how collected and powerful the mind can become. It's like when you collect the mind, it's like you, you go round up all the little pieces of mind that are off, thinking about yesterday and tomorrow and plans and this. and that. It's just it's so scattered to in every direction. It's like collecting the mind is just collecting it all, bringing it all back here so that the whole mind can be present for what is arising right now. And when the mind has that collectedness, it can know, or it is said, the Buddha, who had a very collected mind, could know anything that he put his mind to, because the mind was so powerful. We have that capacity. That potential is within the mind. It's not a personal attribute of the Buddha and his friends, or some extraordinary teachers, you know, now it's Pauk and Lee Brasington and those who are teaching concentration. It's not a capacity or potential that only some people have. We all have that potential. But it takes development. It takes training in order to learn how to collect the mind. But the mind is responsive. If you make the effort, if you fulfill the causes, the result will happen, the collectedness of the mind. When the mind is collected or concentrated, a really interesting thing happens. We really experience everything as one. We know when we talk about oneness, or we talk about we're all one, or we talk about how everything is connected to everything, that kind of knowledge comes from the collectedness of mind. 
Have you ever noticed sometimes on retreat, you know, you might be walking on the path from here down to the dining room, and you know the path has got this loose gravel on it. Sometimes you're walking along, and the pattern that those rocks make on the path is so perfect. Or you look out into the forest and you see the limbs on the trees in a certain way, you say, my God, that is just perfect. How did they do that? I mean, you know, well, they've always been that way. But you're just noticing the collected mind brings everything together so that everything fits perfectly. You can, you can look at a random pattern of wood grain on the floor and it looks just divine. It's just like it just, it's so all together in one piece. Well, imagine if you did that to your mind and then looked at your life. You wouldn't be scattered. You wouldn't have, you know, interest going off in all directions. Everything you saw would be perfect. It would just all fit together just so exquisitely. That's what the collected or concentrated mind, that's how the collected or concentrated mind sees things. So when we look at and as we develop concentration or collectedness of mind, we're going to see a very unified mind, a very unified life. We're going to see things in its, in its perfection. We're going to see it through a lens of understanding it to be perfect the way it is. It said that uh, Deepama, you know, Deepama was uh, one of our teachers from India, uh, died many years ago, but she had a very powerful uh, mind, a very collected, concentrated mind. And one of our friends gave her a whole battery of Western psychological tests, you know, personality tests and all kinds of things, including the Rorschach. Now, you know the Rorschach test? It's 10 cards. Ink blot. It's the ink blot test. You know, ten cards. They start out pretty simple, looking like a black butterfly. You know, something folded in half. Looks. So you're gonna just say, well, what do you see here? You know, the guy, the person, the man, woman that's giving you the test. What do you see? So you you just tell them what you see, and and as the cards go along, of course, they get more complex, and they get colors, and they just get very elaborate and complex. Well, when they gave this test to Deepama, and then analyzed her results or her answers. They discovered that she did something with the Rorschach that had never been done before. No one else had ever done this. They'd never had a record of someone doing a Rorschach like this before. She made a story out of everything she saw in all ten cards, which was a teaching of the Dharma. Now, if you've ever looked at those cards, <laughs> they don't have anything to do with one another. But her mind saw it as all just one thing. And she just told the story about it. That's what a collected mind does. <clears throat> so, we have uh, tranquility, we have samadhi or concentration. And the third uh, tranquilizing factor is equanimity. This is the, um, the best that Vipassana gets without or before attaining uh, the unconditioned, is strongly or highly developed equanimity. It is a balanced mind. It's the mind that is just not reacting, not falling into reactivity, and not being passive, but 
being present with whatever is arising, moment to moment, and seeing it clearly. It is the most exquisite uh, state of mind. Other than, of course, the, the unconditioned. We can approach practice with equanimity. We need to try to kind of be neutral or be not reactive or kind of approach it without expectation. You know, we talk about no expectation, just see the way it is. Or when something arises, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, don't get caught in your emotional reaction to it. See if you can react to it without uh, getting too excited or getting too depressed or deflated. But when equanimity of insight develops, this is not this is not the kind of the affective emotional equanimity, but it's equanimity of perception, equanimity of your cognitive understanding, then balance. Then it's like no matter what arises, the mind receives it in a balanced state of mind, understands it from a balanced state of mind, responds to it from a balanced state of mind. In fact, it becomes effortless because the mind is not Mm, what would you say? The mind is not getting entangled in anything. And so things pass by really smoothly and quickly. The mind that's, that has a strong equanimity is very rapid. And, and the mindfulness is effortless in keeping up. It's a very stable, the mind is very serene, the mind is very calm. No matter what you observe is pleasant. The, the observing itself is very pleasant. There's never any boredom. And you can't send your mind out. You know, usually the mind goes out. It sees something, it goes out and, and investigates. Or it hears something, it goes out and investigates. The mind that's in, in strong equanimity doesn't go out. It always stays in and knows what's going on. You know, is mindful of the inner state. And this becomes uh, just a, a very subtle, uh, not, it's not a state of mind, but it's an ongoing being of mind where there's just no, no, no judgment of others, no judging of yourself, uh, no need to make any effort, never any lack of effort. Uh, it, it, it is really just an exquisite uh, development of mind that understands things from a, uh, an extraordinary uh, perspective. These are the seven capacities of mind, the seven activities of mind which we're developing here. So we're developing our mindfulness through investigation and energy. We bring joy to the mind. And when the momentum or the continuity of awareness is noticeable, then you know the reactivity of the mind is less, the calmness of the mind and body is more, you know, and the mind gets collected. These qualities get aroused and developed, but they're not in balance a lot. Often they're out of balance. And it is mindfulness of the imbalance that will bring you back into balance. So when you're too wound up, too much energy, and you notice that, and you're mindful of the excessive energy, that will bring it down. Or it'll raise up the tranquility 
to meet it. If you notice that there's too much tranquility and you're really going under, and you keep noticing that, it raises the energy to meet that level of tranquility. So it's mindfulness that is the balancer, if you will, of the three tranquilizing and the three energizing factors. And when the mind is brought into balance, when these factors are all mature and they're brought into balance, it is then that the development of insight, I mean, the insight is happening all along, but it's then that the development of insight can mature to support accessing the unconditioned. But it's through the balanced mind, the energized and tranquilized mind that is clearly knowing that can see and let go and access the unconditioned. So let's just sit for a minute and let these words quiet down. 